Now the holiday of Purim, soon upon us, is 30 days before Pesach. One of the questions is, what is, if there is, the relationship between Purim and Pesach, which is a, an interesting question. And just to begin with the observation that in the Megillah, the month of redemption in the Megillah is the last month. Chodesh Masar. And the last month in the Megillah also has a name. The Megillah assigns names or gives names to the months, or mentions the names of the month. It's not Jewish names, but the last month, the twelfth month, Adar. So the month of Adar is the month in which the battle takes place and the Jews are saved, and the holiday of Purim is established. All this is described in detail in chapter 9, both the battle and also the celebration. Celebration, actually, there are two celebrations. One celebration is on the 14th of the month, the day that they rest from battle. The battle is on the 13th. And then the Megillah speaks of a second day of battle in Shushan, and that the Jews in Shushan, after defeating their enemies, rested on the next day, which is the 15th day. So these are the days of celebration. It would appear, and it's actually interesting, not for now, but it would appear that at some point in time there was just one day, one day celebration, which was the 14th and that the additional day of celebration was a function of Mordechai writing a letter to the Jews in all the different states and instructing them to celebrate two days. This is found in chapter 9, verse 21. So Mordechai, counter to what it said earlier, a couple of verses earlier, in verse number 19, that the Jews, the Jews in the cities of Prozot, here they translate unwalled cities. It's not clear that's what it means, but leave that for now, would observe the 14th day of Adar as a day of joy and drinking and celebration, sending portions to friends. So it says, it mentions only the 14th, which is. Purim, what we call Purim, only that day is mentioned, and the 15th is not mentioned. So the 15th is only mentioned as, as a day of celebration when Mordechai sends his letter around in verse number 20. And then in verse 21, he instructs them to keep two days. And he says, According to the days that the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month, which was reversed from sadness, mourning to joy, to make those days, days of joy and drinking, to make them days of sending portions to friends and gifts to poor. So Mordechai added, would appear two things. He added the gifts to the poor, which was not in the original celebration, and he also added a second day of Purim. Now, it's very unclear, actually, when you read this, what exactly he had in mind. In other words, by that I mean, is it that everybody celebrates two days, or is it that, depending where you live, you celebrate the day that you rested? Because it's unclear. We, we know what we do. We know that our practice has been that Jews in different places celebrate different days. It's called Shushan Purim. The main place of Shushan Purim in today's world is Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is a walled city, and they, at least parts of it, exactly where Jerusalem is is a good question, but so Yerushalayim celebrates Purim on the 15th, and every place else, pretty much, a couple of exceptions, celebrate Purim on the 14th. That's what we do. But that's not clear from the verse, actually. No, it isn't because it says um, in, in the first, in Mordechai's first notification, he says, you didn't the old city celebrated on the 14th. That wasn't his note. That's what the text says. That's what the text says. So, and then why, why if Yerushalayim is a old city, do we celebrate on the 15th? I just don't get it. Now, Yerushalayim is not mentioned in the Megillah no, at no, all. No, you just said, right. therefore, even though it's unclear whether we only celebrate one day or depending on where we live, you said that Yerushalayim is a classic example of a Shushan Purim because it's a walled city, so we celebrate on the 15th. But if the original instructions were Yehudim Ba'areha Prazot, celebrate on the 14th, why right. do we celebrate it on the 15th in Yerushalayim? Because Prazot is taken to mean a city without a wall. Oh, without a wall. Okay. An unwalled city. That's what they translated here. So Shushan would be, actually Shushan, in the Megillah, Megillah doesn't speak of Jerusalem or any place else for that matter. The, what we know in the Megillah is that the city of Shushan, where there was fighting on the 14th as well as the 13th, we know that in Shushan they rested on the 15th. And we know that in contradistinction to Shushan, in other places they rested on the 14th and celebrated on the 14th. What's not clear in the Megillah is every place means every other place except for Shushan, which is what I think it means. Or does it mean city with walls as opposed to unwalled? That's the question. From a, from a standpoint of practice, the practice of the Jewish people has been for many, many hundreds of years to distinguish between cities that have walls and don't have walls. Or that Gemara adds that had walls from the time of Yeshua ben Nun. I want to discuss that now, but the point is, but in, I simply point out that when you read the Megillah itself, it's not at all clear. Maybe it means something different. Maybe it means that Jews, all Jews, celebrate two days of Purim, the 14th and the 15th. Now, what's particularly interesting about this is that not only does the verse mention celebrating two days of Purim, the 14th and the 15th, but it also says something else in verse number 22 that the Jews should celebrate these days in verse 22, So it mentions celebrating two days, whether everybody celebrates two days, or depending where you live, you celebrate the day that you were rested from your battle, leaving that out. But it also says something else, namely, that it's not just celebrating the two days, but it's celebrating the month. The month in which, it says, Achodesh, the month that was reversed from sorrow to joy to keep the two days within that month. So the Megillah emphasizes two things, that the month, this particular month is special, month of Adar, last month, and it also emphasizes that there, within that month there were two main days of celebration, which are the 14th and the, and the 15th. So when you read this, it's very striking that in the Chumash, when the Chumash talks about a special month, actually in the Chumash there were two special months, but the, for our purposes, the one that is very interesting is the first month. The Chumash, for example, in the book of Devarim, in chapter, was it 16? The Sefer Devarim says explicitly, chapter 16, verse number 
was it verse number one, I think. Shomorit Chodesha Aviv, Viosito Pesach Vashem Elohecha. Observe the month of Aviv. Month of Aviv is the spring month, which is, we call it Nisan, the first month. And offer sacrifice, a Passover sacrifice to your God. What's interesting is that actually over here, in these verses, in chapter 16, it doesn't even mention which day of the month you do it. It says you bring a Paschal sacrifice. And then, later on, it talks about eating matzah for either six days or seven days. So there's an allusion to a festival of matzot, Chag matzot, but specific focus here is Pesach. Pesach in the Torah means the Paschal sacrifice, which was brought on the 14th day of the month. So Pesach is an interesting holiday. Pesach is Pesach itself is the 14th of the first month, and the next day commences Chag HaMatzot, that's the 15th day, and that inaugurates a festival of seven days. So what's interesting is, and the Chumash emphasizes here, to observe the month, and not only here, but of course, back in chapter 12 of Shemot, and we read this in a couple of weeks, Parashat HaChodesh, HaChodesh HaZelachem Rosh Chodashim, this month is the first month, is the Rosh, not just the first month, but the most significant month. It's the beginning of our history, of our identity, and that's the first month. And all the months in the Torah are counted from the first month. The Torah doesn't know from names of months or names of the days of the week. The Torah only knows from the, from, the, from the numbers. Shabbat is the seventh day, and Pesach is the first month. That's how it's that's how the Torah works. In the Megillah and elsewhere, take on other names, maybe Babylonian names or whatever, but the Chumash doesn't know from names. Of, of. In any event, what's interesting is that whereas in the Chumash, the significant month is the first month. I would add the seventh month is also significant, but that's not our issue right now. But the first month is described in terms of a month and a very special month. And within that month, if you had to pick out two days that are significant, it's the 14th and the 15th. The Pesach is the 14th, and Chag begins on the 15th. And now in the Megillah, you have the holiday of Purim, and which is described as the month, the special month that from sorrow to joy. And in particular, Mordechai instructs everybody that there are two days to be observed in this month, the 14th and the 15th. I believe that the pshat in the Megillah is everybody observes two days. That's not the practice. Although it is very interesting to take note of the fact that even though the practice of the Jewish people has been that those that observe the 14th don't observe the 15th, and those that observe the 15th don't observe the 14th, that's not completely true. What is very striking is from a halachic standpoint, as it developed, even those that don't observe the 15th but the 15th has a special standing, even for those on the, on the 14th, and vice versa. So that's it's actually very interesting, that in a certain sense, even though the practice is two, two separate days, but in terms of the significance of the days, there's a significance of each day for the, for the other, which makes complete sense, given the fact that, how could I really observe my festival if I know my fellow Jews are fighting for their lives in the capital city? So it makes total sense, and that's part of Mordechai's point. Mordechai's point is you can't really celebrate your holiday unless you realize that everybody can celebrate. 
And the same thing is true for the second thing Mordechai adds, which is his own addition, namely, Matanot Levionim. Mordechai added giving gifts to the poor, which is not in the initial formulation of the holiday at all. Initially, it's sending gifts to friends. And Mordechai added Matanot Levionim, I presume for the same reason that he, you know, he felt that everybody has to be included, especially given the fact that the edict against the Jews in the Megillah was directed against everybody. Amalek doesn't distinguish between what kind of Jew you are. So Amalek was out to kill all of them, men, women, children, and that's the, that was the decree. So contradistinction to that, Mordechai instructs that the celebration of Purim should include everybody, including the Evionim. In any event, that's a very striking, I would say, contrast or comparison, contrast between the holiday of Pesach and the holiday of Purim. Now what's interesting is this, that in the Megillah, in the Megillah, the Megillah knows from the first month. Megillah even gives the month the name Nisan. We know from other sources of the ancient Near East of Nisan, or Nisanu as it's called. But Nisan is mentioned in the Megillah. Nisan is the month that Haman cast the uh, lot, the Goral, the poor. And it's also the month that he goes to the king, Achashverosh, and he asks Achashverosh to destroy, to kill all the Jews who are not worthwhile keeping alive. That's explicit in chapter 3. So we know that, we don't know what day he cast the lot. That doesn't say what day he cast the lot. We know what day, the, what day it says in the, in the, let's see what it says exactly. In chapter 3, chapter 3, we know he cast the lot in the first month, that we know. Let's find this. Let's just find the, let's just find the, the verse, though. It is the 13th. Let's see. Let's see. Right, so it says that that the scribes So we know that on the 13th day of the first month, the king's scribes were summoned and a decree was issued. So that we do know. We know that he goes to the king and the king permits him to carry out his plan and that the edict is written on the 13th day of the first month. What we don't know is when they actually cast the lot. We, we know it's in the first month. So it's actually very interesting. One could make the argument, which I think is true actually, that he cast the lot on the same day he goes to the king. He's not waiting around. He goes immediately to the king, although the text is not completely clear about it. Was it what is interesting in this respect I have it in a little footnote in my Megillah, is the following. There was a festival in the ancient Near East, probably the main festival in the ancient Near East, which a lot has been written. It's called the uh, Akitu. And it goes on for a couple thousand years, by the way, in different places. And the Akitu was, as far as we can determine, a 12-day festival with a very elaborate ritual. It was a very striking ritual. And during those 12 days of the first month, which will be Nisan. So it is, there's an elaborate ritual, and it's sort of the gods, the main one being Marduk, actually, determines what's going to happen during the rest of the year. It's all predetermined during the first 12 days of this first month, what's going to happen. So it is rather striking if, in fact, Haman casts his lot 
on the 13th day. The 13th day is the day immediately following the 12-day festival of the first month. That would fit in very nicely because Haman says the gods have determined what's going to happen during the course of the next year. And now I'm going to ter- determine what's going to happen during the course of the next year. So it is, one could make the argument, certainly possible, that the casting of the lot was the same day that the king writes or issue or, or permits the scribes to write the decree. And I would say the following. There is a difficult verse. Actually, the Megillah has many difficult verses. But when Haman cast the lot, let's see where that is. That's in chapter 3, verse number 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, on the twelfth year of Achashverosh's reign, he peel poor Haman. Haman cast a lot. He peel poor. Poor is a not apparently a Hebrew word, so it translates the goral. Poor is the goral before Haman. Now the question is, what does that mean? Let's see what the JPS does with this. Was cast before Haman concerning every day and every month until it fell on the 12th month, that is, the month of Adar. So they're translating that that he cast a lot relating to every single day and every month until it fell, don't ask me how this works, until it fell on the 13th day of the 12th month. I find that certainly possible, but I offered a different interpretation in the Megillah, which is interesting. I'm not sure it's right, but it's interesting. And that is that I believe, if we presume, which is certainly a possibility, that he cast the lot on the same day he goes to the king. He doesn't wait around. It means he cast the lot on the 13th day of the first month. And then, perhaps what it means, miyom liyom umechodesh lechodesh, is that he cast the lot on that day concerning every month. In other words, the, the 12 possibilities, not 365 or whatever. 12 possibilities, the Jews will be killed. I don't know if it's going to be the first month because he's casting it. But they could be killed the second month on the 13th day, the third month on the 13th day, the fourth. It's miyom miyom. From that day, going through the months of the year. And if that be the case, actually, if that be true, then what's interesting is that there are only 12 possibilities, or 11 possibilities, and that the lot falls on the absolute last day it could happen. See, according to the other interpretation, it could have fallen on the 28th day of the 12th month. But if miyom miyom means he cast it from that day, the day of the casting is the day they're going to be destroyed. What's not clear is which month. He has to go through all the months. If it falls on the 12th month, on the 13th day, it means... It's the absolute last day it could happen. The falls on the absolute last day. So he cast the lot on the first month, but it's going to fall, it falls on the last month. Now, here's what's interesting about this. If we presume this, if, I say if. So there's a lot of discussion. Let us assume that Haman, given his personality, is not going to wait around. He goes to the king, and we know that the decree was written on the 13th day of the first month. Then we're told that when the decree goes out, that Mordechai, in the very next chapter, knows everything. He puts on sackcloth. He's in deep mourning. He's standing outside the temple gates, or the, the king's gates, the palace gates. And then in, ensues the conversation through the intermediary with Esther, asking Esther to help. If we, if, I say if, it's not clear, but if we presume, as many do, and within the Talmud as well, 
that this takes place on the same day. Then Mordechai is not waiting around. The moment he sees this decree, he communicates with Esther. And then Esther says, okay, I'm going to go to the king, tell everybody to fast for three days. If that's true, okay, then much has been made of the fact that if the fast takes place for three days, let's say commencing tomorrow, which is the 14th day of the first month, which is known in the Torah as Pesach, and the 15th day and the 16th day, these are the day of the Paschal sacrifice and the first two days of the Passover holiday, means all the Jews in all the Medinot are actually fasting on Pesach. So there's much was made of the fact that in the Megillah, not only is Pesach not observed, it would appear, but actually Pesach becomes a day of mourning, a day of fasting, which is not the way the Chumash seems to present the festival of Pesach. Now, I'm not sure this is in Pshat. I don't know if this is true or not. There is an argument to be made that it's not true from the verse that says in chapter 4 that the decree, when Mordechai heard the decree, he put on his sackcloth and all that, and he goes to the street and he cries out with a bitter cry. And then it said in chapter 4, verse number 3 on page 1791, In every state, wherever the king's decree would come, there was great mourning for the Jews. So the question is, what does that mean? Is that a flesh, is that saying, and in general, what's going to happen is, wherever the decree hits, the Jews will be crying, mourning, and fasting, and all that. But it hasn't happened yet, because if Esther is, is, if Esther is going to the king right on the first day, and the messages have to go out. It takes months for the messages to go out. How many places could have received the decree already? None, basically, maybe Shushan. The Persians were known for a good postal system, by the way. So that's interesting. But good or not good, it still takes time. So what does it mean they know? So it w- for that verse, it would appear that actually it doesn't happen right away, that there was a, a, a time lapse. Okay, that's a good question. But let me make a different point about this business with Pesach. What's interesting in the... It doesn't happen right away. I mean, the decree is made and then it gets sent out, so... Right. What do you you mean? What I mean is people don't hear about it right away. You don't get the mail right away. In other words, it's 127 states. We can assume it takes months to to get the... Months, right? The postal roads that were set up by Darius, okay, I mean, this is actually well documented, that what used to take three months... I said three months, exactly. It used to take three months right. before the postal roads were set up. It's like the Pony Express only actually paved postal roads with little kiosks along the way to switch their you know, saddles or their you know, go to the bathroom or whatever right. they have to do. And it took two weeks. And that really jives with, with all the safarin and all the messages that actually right. made it from Susa through Persepolis and all the edges, Bactria and all the little, the Hodu, the Akush areas, because there's actually, there's actually, there are maps that show where the postal road was. And given the, if you're on the postal road route, it took two weeks. If you weren't on the postal road route, then it did take three months. So we can assume that it, it was less time probably for the Jews of the Persian Empire to hear what was going on, because presuming they were on some level, you know, on this postal. Okay, but it's not going to take two days. It still takes time. Not two days. The truth of the matter is that actually, I believe, in the Megillah, it's three months. And the reason I think it's three months is because Mordechai and Esther only asked the king to reverse the, the, the decree in the third month. They don't ask the king to reverse the decree against the Jews. It's one of the mysteries of the Megillah. 
Now, one possible reason they wait till the third month, could be, and we have stories like this, maybe they're concerned with something else. That if you said the people are too soon, it's possible, and this has happened in human history, that you'll get the second, the second piece of mail before you get the first one, which would not be good. You want to get the second piece of mail second, which says God, that he supports the Jews. In any event, the, the verse is, this is not my main point. I'll get to the point I want to make about it. What do you want to say, Avram? No, I wanted to ask you, so if we assume that they were people, that there were Jews actually fasting on Pesach, right. so what, is, what are you thinking about? I'll tell you. That idea? Well, I'm about to say what I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm going to say. When you read the Megillah, you don't get a sense that the big month of the year is the first month. In the Megillah, they argue that actually on Pesach, they're fasting, which is hardly what you would expect, given the fact that in the Chumash, Pesach obviously is an extremely significant holiday, beginning of nationhood and all that. But my point is a different point. It's not, the problem in the Megillah is not that they're fasting on Pesach. The actual problem, if you want to call it a problem, is that there's not a shred of a hint in the slightest at all that Pesach exists. It's not about the fasting on Pesach. That's not it's Pesach, or we have to fast on Pesach. When you read the Megillah, there's no mention of Pesach. It's the first month, and that's the month where the decree goes out. But there's absolutely no sense whatsoever in this book that there's any observance of Pesach altogether, which I think is very interesting. The observance in this book is not in the first month. The observance is in the 12th month. And when I say the observance, one of the striking features of the Megillah that tradition was well aware of, is that the Megillah is not just a story. It is a story that takes place over eight chapters. But what's even perhaps more interesting is that in this book, Mordechai and Esther together are instructing the Jews about observance. And in fact, how to observe this festival, this two-day festival, which month is significant as well, and they're writing these things out, and there's perhaps even a hint, not a hint, explicit in the Megillah is that we have to remember what actually took place. This Karim Vinasim, the focus in the last chapter, is that these days are to be remembered. Now anybody who opens up a Chumash understands very well, you don't even need a Chumash for it, everybody knows, that when it comes to remembering something, both in the Torah and in the practice of the Jewish people for more than 2,000 years, it's obvious that there's one thing we are told to remember above everything else. It appears in so many different places. It's called Zechel Itziat Mitzrayim. It's it's in the Shema, it's in the daily blessings, it's in every single festival, it's in the Kiddush, it's all over the place. Shabbos itself is Zechel Itziat, everything is Zechel Itziat Mitzrayim. When you get to the Megillah though, there's no mention of Yitziat Mitzrayim at all. There's no mention of Pesach. That's the issue. But there's something else. There is the mention of the last month, the month of Adar, which is the special month, the observance, the letters, and the memory. These days are to be remembered. Therefore, I think what's very interesting is that one could, let's leave out the Mishnah, let's leave out the Gemara, when you simply read this book, okay? What strikes me is that one way to read the book, which I will explain in a minute, is that Pesach doesn't actually exist. Whether Jews observed it or not, they have no idea. But within the actual book, when you read the book, there is not a shred of evidence in this book that there's such a thing as Pesach. And let me explain why I believe that this is the case. This is one of the chapters in my Megillah book, which I like very much. I actually like the whole book, to tell you the truth. I think it's ingenious from top to bottom. And here's the point I make about the rabbinic tradition, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Mishnah. The Gemara says, actually, that's how I began all this, that let's say this year, we, this year we have two Adars, Adarish and Adarshani, right? Talipia. So we're now we're in Adarshani. So the Gemara, the Mishnah, discusses the question when there are two Adars 
When do you observe Purim? So there's a, there's a disagreement. Some say you observe in the first Adar, which is the logical way because the Megillah speaks about the 12th month and the first Adar is the 12th month. But the consensus is not that way. The consensus is to observe Purim in the second month. And one of the reasons that's given is to adjoin redemption to redemption. In other words, to put Purim next to Pesach. Purim is one kind of redemption, and then Pesach is a different kind of redemption, and we want the two redemptions to be next to each other. That's what the Gemara, and that's how, that is the practice of the Jewish people, to observe Purim in the second Adar. So the argument that I make is the following, that actually, when you read the Megillah, when you read the Megillah, there's no sense of Pesach altogether, and I'll explain why there's no sense of Pesach. This is the main claim of my commentary, is that when you read the Megillah, unlike other books of the Bible, the other books of the Bible, Book of Daniel, Book of Ezra, the Book of Nehemiah, all those books, it's always about returning to Zion. It's about going back to Jerusalem. Daniel is praying facing Yerushalayim three times a day. Nehemiah wants to go back. Ezra wants to go back. And then they do. And they bring some people with them, not so many. And they rebuild the land, the state of Israel, the land of Israel, the temple. That's what those books are all about. When you read the book of Esther, what is striking is that there is not the slightest intimation in this book, as far as I can tell, but going back to uh, Israel. There's not the slightest intimation about that. There's not the slightest intimation about a temple. Whether or not at this time there is a temple, whether there's no temple, but there's, in the book, there's nothing about that. In the book, which begins with Achashverosh, and it ends with Achashverosh. And Mordechai is good for the Jews, and Mordechai is Dover, Shalom, Uchol Zaro. He's a, a good advisor to the king. About Esther, we don't hear too much outside of the letters that she writes at the end and the instructions that she gives. Ketov Zod Zikaron Basefer. She instructs the Jews to remember with a specific focus on Amalek as well. But there is no sense in this book on any level that you go back to Jerusalem, that you go back to the land. This is where you are. The book is not about returning. The book is about exile from beginning to end. And the book doesn't never suggest you go back. And not only does it not suggest you go back, but the point that we have already encountered to some extent is that when you read about this culture, the culture of Achashverosh, which is the world, basically. Mehodu v'yad kush, the world. The world is run by Achashverosh from beginning to end. And the culture of this place is a combination of two things, I would say. The book alludes to two different things. First of all, it alludes to Egypt, to Mitzrayim. It's not an accident that one of the main stories that the book plays off in many, 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 many different ways is the story of Yosef. The Joseph narrative is one of the, if not the, foundational story of the Megillah. There's a reason for that. So that's the story. And there's no sense of, of leaving Mitzrayim. In other words, you're in Mitzrayim. What, what, what is Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim, among other things, is a place which has no memory. Nobody remembers in Egypt. Because when you remember, you might remember that you owe somebody something. So people don't want to remember that. They want to forget. They want to pretend it all happened yesterday. So there's no memory. In, in the story of Joseph, the butler forgets Joseph three days after Joseph told him the good news. You're going to be saved. This is what's going to happen. Remember me unto Pharaoh. He doesn't remember him. He only remembers two years later when it helps himself that he remembers. Same thing is true in the Megillah. Megillah, there are books written. Everything's written down in a book. Mordechai saves the life of the king. It says in chapter 2, it's written down in the book. It's written down in the record books. That's the book Achashverosh will never read. He doesn't read those books because the book has a bunch of IOUs in them in which he has zero interest. But one night, he can't sleep. Chapter 6. Naradosh he instructs to bring the books. Sefer HaZichronot, the book of memories. Divrei Hayomim. 
what happened during the course of the days, have it be read before the king. There you have, there you have the three words, to write, to remember, and book. Those three words which come together with Amalek, which come together at the end of the Megillah. So suddenly he's having a book read to him. It was written all the time. But the point is, all the time he doesn't care about what's in that book. But on that particular night, something bothers him. Something is, it's one way to read the Megillah. Something is bothering the king. And we can presume what's bothering the king is the fact that the queen has twice invited his chief counselor to party together with them. As Esther said in chapter 5, that the party I made for them, plural, that, he doesn't, that doesn't sit right with the king. Why is this guy invited to the party with the queen twice together with me? So let's see, bring out the record books. Let's see, what do we know about Haman? Haman is squeaky queen, he's got a very good record. Okay, what do we know about Haman's enemies? Mordechai the Jew, he saved my life. How was he rewarded? He wasn't rewarded. For the paranoia, that's, 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 that's sufficient. So one way to read the Megillah is what Esther has accomplished is to put into this guy's head what's with Haman. And then when Haman comes to see him that very night, or early in the morning, to tell the king to kill Mordechai right away, not to wait till the 13th of Adar, because he has to enjoy his meal. And then the king says to him, what should be done to the one that the king wishes to honor? So that's the question when you read it. Is that an innocent question? He's asking his counselor. Or, it's not so innocent, it's actually a test. Because Haman says, who would the king wish to honor more than me? And depending how you read Achashverosh, is he just an idiot, or he may be a tipesh on a certain level, but he's a clever one. Then he's actually, he knows what Haman is thinking. Really, Haman, what do you think should be to the one the king wishes to honor? Haman says, got to be me. Because Esther's invitations have moved this guy from egomaniac on one level to a totally different level. To a level where the fact that Mordechai's not bowing down to him. It's not clear, by the way, that Mordechai sees him, by the way, in that story. He passes by the gate. It's not clear. But why doesn't he bow down to me? I see him. He must see me. How come he's not bowing down? So I can't wait till the, to kill him with all the Jews. I've got to kill him right away. So he goes to his family. So tell the king what to do. And, and Marla Melech, tell the king. He's your buddy. Tell him what to do. So he builds the gallows right away. He doesn't wait to ask. He builds the gallows immediately. He assumes. That's all. And then he goes to the king. And the king says, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? And depending how you read the book, and they're both readings of totally viable, it could be an innocent question. And then there's the irony that, or it could be not so innocent. It could be a test. And when Haman says, parade him around the city wearing the king's clothing and the king's horse and the crown, that's it. That's a death sentence for Haman. So the king says to Haman, okay, you do it for Mordechai the Jew who sits in the gate. So the king knows exactly who Mordechai is. The, 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 the book that he read didn't mention the gate, it didn't mention the Jew, it says Mordechai. The king knows exactly who Mordechai is. He's, that's one way to read the book. He knows exactly. So the point is, it's a place with no memory. The king only remembers when it's... He, he has a problem. Bring out the record books. It's not to reward Mordechai. And by the way, I want to make the obvious point, he still intends to kill Mordechai. The king has no intention of revoking the decree against Mordechai. In a few months, Mordechai will be killed with all the Jews. So it's not about rewarding Mordechai, as it were. It's about putting down Haman, and the king is concerned about Haman, because why is he coming with the queen? So that's a good way, to, that's a, one way to read the Megillah. It's not the only way, but it's a, it's a way to read it. So it's a place with no memory. Just one second, sir. You're living in a place with no memory. And I would add to this, you're living in, a, in the Chumash, actually, the land of Canaan, in the Chumash. This is the key point of the book, actually. The land of my book. Is that they, I think it's a key point, one of the key points of the Megillah. In the Chumash, you go to the Holy Land. The Chumash, the, the land, the special land in the Chumash, is after the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, there's an alternative sacred space. 
And the person who is to discover the sacred space, spaces, is Abraham. And he does it in two different stages. He does it in chapter 12 when God commands him, to the place that I will show you. Only God determines where the sacred space is. And he does it in chapter 22 when God says, for the second time. And the only time that term appears in the Bible, go to the place that I will tell you, which is Mount Moriah, which is the place of the temple which is the holy place within the holy place. So Abraham is the one who is commanded, Lechucha, both in the first instruction and the last instruction, and this is the place that replaces the Garden of Eden. But before you get to that story, which is chapter 12 of Breshit, there's a story, there's a narrative story that precedes it immediately. The narrative right before Lechucha is the story of the Tower of Bavel, Migdal Bavel, where the whole world gets together and they're going to set up a special city. And within the special city, they're going to build a tower that goes to the heavens. So the people, not God, but the people determine where the sacred space is, which turns out to be Bavel, Shinar, Bavel. And they're going to build not just a city there, and that's scattered over the face of the earth. They're going to build a tower going to the heavens. And God doesn't like this. God resents this. God thinks it's arrogant. And God disperses them. And the way God disperses them is by confusing the language. They all speak a different language, so they can't talk to each other. And because they speak a different language, they are dispersed over the face of the earth. And the next story, God says to Abraham, Lechucha, to the place that I will show you. The Megillah is about a different world. Not the world of the Garden of Eden. Not the world of the true alternative to the Garden of Eden, where God and the human can dwell in the same space, where God communicates. The Megillah says something different. The Megillah says... Let me describe a different world. I have a different world. I have a world where actually you're in Bavel. Because the only reason you left Bavel in the first place is because people spoke different languages. But what about if you have a world of 127 languages, but there's still one king, there's still one person in charge of this world of 127 languages. So there's no dispersion. There's no different, there's no gullus as it were, because you, don't get, you never get to Eretz Canaan. You're still in Bavel. And not only that, but the culture is the culture of Mitzrayim. Now remember, in the Chumash, in chapter 12 of the Chumash, God says to Abraham, Lechucha, the narrative that precedes it is Bavel. The narrative that follows it is Mitzrayim. He goes down to Egypt, where Pharaoh takes his wife. So the Megillah is saying a different, something different. Let's imagine a different world. It's about imagining a world. The world that I imagine, says the Megillah, is not a world of the land of Canaan. It's a world in which you live, the place in which you live is actually Mitzrayim. The values are Mitzrayim, and I would add the values are also Bavel. There's one person who can be seen as ruling everything, Hamelech. And then the question is, if you live in that kind of a world, how do you function? That's, that's the challenge of the Megillah. But of course, in that kind of a world, and this is the point, in that kind of a world, it would be ridiculous to have a Torah which talks about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Remember the exodus from Egypt. When, you know, we open up the book of Devarim, the Ramban noticed this, and actually it's obvious. When you open up the book of Devarim, it says over and over again, when you come into the land, when you come into the land, these are the observances that you are to do within the land. The Megillah says something else in the Pshat, which is, let's imagine, just imagine for a minute, that you never get to the land. And not only you never get to the land, you never leave the land of Egypt. So the Megillus is actually implicitly saying something very different that the rabbinic tradition doesn't want you to say, and they set out to go against it. But if that were the case, if the world in which you function is a world of Mitzrayim, you're in Mitzrayim, and there's no getting to the land, so the question is, 
what would the Torah look like? That's, that's, this is the radical part of the Megillah that the rabbinic tradition doesn't like because it understands very well. It's a perfectly valid reading of, the, of this book. And the book does have Torah. The only book we have outside basically of the Torah that instructs us how to live is Megillah Esther. Mordechai and Esther are sending around their Torah, basically. Their Torah is about Matanus Lev Yonim. Now, their Torah is not so different from aspects of the standard Torah that we have, about reaching out to the poor, of inclusion, of memory, and all that. But it takes a completely different form. You're not going to remember Mitzrayim, since you're still there, and you're never going to leave, not for the foreseeable future. So what would the Torah look like in that case? It would be a different Torah, right? One could make that argument. I mean, logically, it should be a different Torah, if you never left Egypt, how can you speak about remembering the exodus from Egypt, since you're in Egypt? How can you speak about when you come into the land, this is what you do when you ain't in the land, and there's no sense in this book you will be in the land? So that's a way to read the Megillah, actually. That's what I think the Megillah actually at its core is about. For one year, I dabbled a bit in philosophy. I thought about going into philosophy. So I went to NYU, and they had whatever, I took some courses there. And there was a guy named Hiram J. McClendon, who was a complete weirdo, a lovable guy, but very, very strange guy. And he had been a pupil of Bertrand Russell, actually. Very funny guy. I remember one day as a kid, he said, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they're all myths, and they're all true. And actually, that stuck with me. That stuck with me to this very day. By myth, he meant a way of describing the world. And the Garden of Eden is a way of describing the world. The Torah, actually, is a way of describing the world. And the Megillah is a way of it's a different world. The Megillah is a way of describing the world. And they're all true, actually, because depending on how you see the world, it varies from day to day. We don't always see the world the same way every day. The Megillah is seeing a different world. The Megillah is, i tell you a story, and then Sandra will take your comment. I remember when I was in Israel many, many years ago, so we had a pediatrician. used to go to him on Emek Rifaim. And, you know, you go to a doctor's office, and there are books there, you know, usually, I don't know, some kind of, I don't know what they have, not deep reading usually, it's some, you know, some magazines or whatever they have there, who knows. So they, he had these magazines or whatever, and then he also had one book sitting there, believe it or not, together with Seventeen and Vogue and, and what else, and the Israeli papers in Jerusalem Post or whatever. The book was Alagula V'yaratmura. Alagula V'yaratmura, has anybody seen Alagula V'yaratmura? Nobody's ever seen it. Alagula V'yaratmura is one of the important works of the Satmar Rebbe. It is a, so of course it's, it is, violently anti-Zionist, that's for sure. That I knew beforehand. But I picked up this book. First of all, what's it doing in this guy's office? So he probably, being a pediatrician, maybe he had many Haredi clients, who knows. They and they left it there for someone to read. And what struck me was something else, not about the Zionism. What struck me was what Rabbi Yoyo, as they call it, assumes about the world. Basically, his assumption about the world. Who actually runs the world? Who's running the world? He assumes that if not totally running the world, that essentially running the world, is what we would call the sitra achra, the other side, or the devil, Satan. Satan runs the world. That's what he assumes in the book, basically. Of course, the Zionists are in good. I must say that, I was reading this, I said to myself, what? And I was thinking to myself, looking at the history of the last hundred years, the man may have a point, you know what I mean? But the fact is, it's a way of seeing the world. Now, it's, I think it's a bleak way of seeing the world. It doesn't matter. My point is, the Megillah potentially, is a way of seeing this world. You live in a world where God at best, God is never mentioned in the Megillah. I'm not saying God ain't there. Could be God is there. There are different ways to read the Megillah. But certainly, bottom line, there's no mention of God at all. The name God never appears. 
not to speak of the fact God never talks. And on the contrary, Hamelech is this king who is either wicked or a fool or both. I mean, it's probably both, but... And then the question is, how do you function in this world? And you're not getting out of it either. You're not, there's no exodus, and there's no temple. And this is where we are. And the question is, what is our task in this world? How do we, how do, we do God's work, one might say, in this world? That is a way to read the Megillah, and it's a way to read the Megillah, I believe, that the rabbinic tradition basically is very uncomfortable with. And they set out to offer an alternative reading to the Megillah. And before I get to Sandra's comment, I'll make a simple point. I, I focus in the book on the Mishnah, adjoining Purim to Pesach. What's also very interesting is what you have in the Talmud, in a very famous Talmudic statement, where the Gemara speaks about Purim, the holiday of Purim, as the day of Kabbalat Torah. The Torah is accepted, the Gemara's Kimu V'Kiblu. At Sinai, God held the mountain over us and said, take the Torah or else. So that wasn't a full acceptance because we had no real choice, but we were threatened, right? When did the Jews really accept the Torah? We accepted the Torah when we had choice, which is the festival of Purim. So the way the famous Agadic statement in Sechet Shabbat presents it, the real Kabbalah Satorah is on Purim, but the, point, the subtext of that is that Purim's not a different Torah. Don't even go there. Don't think that our situation today requires a different kind of Torah. No, 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 no. It's the same Torah. It's just we, always, we accepted it out of our own free will, because we have free will. We could choose otherwise, and we have chosen to accept the Torah. So that's a statement in the Gemara, that statement. And the idea of lining Purim up with Pesach, I, I argue, is a way to say, don't think of Purim as separate from the other festivals of the year. There's Pesach, there's Shavuos, there's Sukkot, and there's Purim. And Purim is a prelude to Pesach, but fundamentally it's a prelude to Pesach. The main holiday is Pesach, and Purim leads you to Pesach. So that's the claim, that's, that's, my, that's actually the main claim of this commentary, but I think it's an actually very interesting claim. It's something to think about, which I don't spell out, what would this Torah look like? Because it makes perfect sense, actually. A total 100% sense that given your situation, the idea of a practice of a halacha, it's not something up there in the heavens, you know what I mean? It's a way to move us forward in, in the world in which we live. But if the world in which we live has no temple and has no sacred space and is a place of no memory and a place where people take and people abuse the, the weak, which of course you have in the Megillah, and not just Haman picks on the Jews. There are two kinds of victims in the Megillah. They're the Jews and they're the women. The Megillah puts it both in the same category, basically. They're people you can beat up on because they have no power. And that's how the king functions, basically. He does it with a smile, you know what I mean? But, but he, that, that's how he functions. So Amalek fits in very well. It's not an accident that he chooses Haman. Of course, the moment the king thinks Haman is a problem, there's no more Haman because that's how it works. Everybody is disposable for the king. But the fact of the matter is, Haman fits in very well. And the point of the Megillah at the end is we have a different way to live. We don't accept that. We believe in matanas levyonim. We believe in inclusion. We believe in everybody has to be included in the festival. We believe in memory. We don't believe in what's good today. We believe in contextualizing everything in terms of our behavior, all that. That's all true. So there's an anti-achashverosh. It's very subtle, because all the same time we're flattering the king. Oh, yes, king. Oh, yes, king. You're so wonderful. But the Megillah presents a very, you know, compartmentalized world. You deal with achashverosh one way, because what can you do? You're not going to talk morals with Achashverosh. And then you have your own world, which is the moral world. Yes, Sandra, what do you want to say? Question related to, to even this last point. So you were saying that Amalek fits in very well. And so when you mentioned that there were, there were key words for Amalek, 
So one of them would have been Sefer, would have been Zichonot. Right. And what was the third keyword? I mean, you had said Divrei Hayamim. No, no, I said three words are Zikaron, memory, yeah. book, and writing. Oh, and writing. So writing. the matzah. The first time you have writing in the Torah is a Okay. It appears two different places in the Megillah. Ketov Zikaron Basefer appears twice in the Megillah. It appears in chapter 6, when the king suddenly decides to remember. The book is called the Book of Memories, and it appears in the last chapter, where the instructions are given by Mordechai and Esther to observe this festival. They make up a holiday. They make up a holiday, which has very striking parallels to Pesach. The 14th and the 15th of the month are the two key dates of the Passover festival, and the month is, is striking. The month is interesting. Yes. Thank you. Yep. So, in thinking about what you're saying, was there Pesach at this point? What do these Jews actually do in terms of practice? Right. So I was thinking about what it says in Megillah, right? It says when, when, when Haman goes to Ahasuerus and tells him about these bad people, what makes us threat is that we're scattered and we have different laws. Yes. And we don't follow the king's laws. That's what he says. That's now, right. Now, when he first kind of gets his whole thing against the Jews going, our problem is that we are too many. Right. That we are a threat because we could potentially take over right. his people. So what do you think about the contrast between these two setups for legitimizing the victimization of the Ibrim and the Jews? Well, I think the Jews have been the victims of both. I mean, you know, the Jews control the world. The Jews are about, what, one hundredth of one percent of the world or something like that, you know what I mean? I don't know what to make of it. I think that in each case, it's about, there's no sense in the in the Chumash that the Jews actually are that powerful. If they were so powerful, they couldn't be enslaved by the Egyptians, which they are enslaved by the Egyptians. I don't know. I think that the Amalek is always picking on the weakness. The Amalek sees the vulnerabilities, that's for sure. So Agag, Mephuzar uh, Mephorad, that's an Amalek MO for sure. You're right about Paro, he, he, he approaches it differently in terms of the danger of the growth of the people, and they're going to, not only that, they're fifth column. They'll join up with their enemies, is what he's really saying. They themselves are going to join up with the enemies, etc. So I don't know. I have nothing to add. I mean, a good observation. Yes? Yeah, just to bring yesterday to 12th month to the first month. Yes. So Adar and you were, you were talking at length, somewhat, somewhat at length yesterday about about the reference to the Song of the Sea. Oh yes, I was. Adar. Right. So in, in a way, the main the theme that brings them together is that is that actually in the Song of the Sea you see supernatural divine intervention. Right. And here the claim is you're not going to see anything supernatural, but God is still running everything. That was the claim I made, yes. That was the claim. That was a potential reading. I may, in this class, also go over that because there's more to be said about that. My point yesterday, I don't want to repeat that all now, but I get. But I have to, have to mention, it's very important. The point I made yesterday was this. I, yesterday I came up completely tangentially because of something in Shoftim, actually. The point I made yesterday about is where is God in the Megillah? Because God is never mentioned in the Megillah. Is God in the Megillah? And my point yesterday was that there were three, I suggested three different approaches as to whether God's in the Megillah or not. I would say a standard approach among certain in certain circles is to make the claim of course God's in the Megillah, but God is hidden. There's Hester upon him. God is in the background, helping out from a distance. You don't see it, but there is God in the Megillah and there even some references in the fact that there's a fast day would suggest that they're appealing to something and someone. 
So that's one way to approach it, and I would say in certain circles that's the main approach to Purim. It's the day of God's hiddenness, it's Hester upon him. God is there. Well, that was not what I focused on yesterday. Yesterday I suggested two other readings of the Megillah, which I thought were interesting. One is that God's not there. That simply the Megillah is a book in which God is absolutely not there, which is the bottom line. There's no mention of God. What I suggested yesterday was that you won't find a commentary who says that, that God simply is not there. God is left. We won't find a commentary that says it. But what I suggested yesterday is that it's not a commentary that says it, but that the, I, I called it the collective unconscious of the Jewish people over time, in fact, through their celebration of Purim, which is not the rabbi's celebration of Purim. The rabbinical celebration of Purim, and it's part of what I just said a few minutes ago, basically for the rabbis, what is Purim? Purim is you read the Megillah, you have a meal, you invite people to the meal, and you give tzedakah. That pretty much is the standard holiday. And the Torah speaks about the holidays, or we observe the holidays. We read the Torah, we have special meals, and we are inviting people to our meals. Simchas Yantav, the Ramam talks about inviting the poor. The Torah speaks about the Levi and the Ger and the Atom and the Almana and all that. So from that perspective, Purim and Pesach are not very different. Purim is basically, for the rabbinic way of understanding it, the observances point to the fact that there's a very strong push to see Purim as pretty normative holiday. Okay, it's true there's more drinking on Purim. It's true that it starts off as a Persian holiday maybe in the Megillah. That's true. But the rabbis, and Mordechai too. Mordechai reshapes the holiday. Mordechai adds Matanus Rebionim. The Jews didn't. Mordechai says we need a Jewish holiday. You want your drinking? You can drink. But it's got to be a Jewish holiday. He didn't eliminate the drinking. He, maybe he feels he couldn't do that, you know? It's Xer that Zebra can't can, can abide. But the fact is, he adds the second day and he adds Matanus Rebionim, etc. And reading the Megillah is hinted at at least. Niskari, memory. So that's a, that Mordechai already turns it into a Jewish day and the rabbis take it beyond. That's what Mordechai. But we have to remember it didn't start off as a Jewish holiday. It starts off as a day of Mishta Vesimcha in chapter 9, which is one of the ten Mishta Vesimchas in the Megillah. That's how the Persians celebrate. So it starts off as a Persian day, which Mordechai changes. And maybe the Mishnah changes and the Gemara changes. But the question is, change is not easy. The question is, what about the Jewish people? How do they observe the festival of Purim? And they have a different set of observances, which is hardly reading a Megillah and a, and a meal. Their observances have to do with blurring all distinctions. Drinking till you don't know between Mordechai and Haman, that's right in the Gemara. But the dressing, men dressing as women, women as men, uh, masks, hitting people, taking things that don't belong to you, appointing as the chief rabbi a complete ignoramus or a child. Goes back to the time of the Gaonim. Wearing shotness, which is the most interesting. That's what got me thinking, wearing shotness. In other words, the point of these practices, of which there are many, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that people that do this are consciously thinking about what I'm saying. I'm sure they're not. But when you have a set of practices, many, seven, eight, ten, twelve of them, and they all point in the same direction, which is two directions actually. One is the blurring of all distinctions. Purim Torah. Purim Torah is good Purim Torah. Masechet Purim is... Masechet Purim looks like a regular Masechta. There's Gemara in the middle, there's Rashi, there's Tosal, but it's absurd, actually. It's using all the rules of the Gemara and the language to arrive at complete absurdities. And what it's saying is basically the following that we believe that there's an order to the world. It's a Seder. That's what Pesach's about, actually. Pesach's about Seder. There's a Seder. There's a purpose to the world. There's a beginning and there's an end. There's a God who interacts in history. There's a covenantal promise. There's an end of days. That's, that's basic Judaism. And one day in the year, or maybe people during the course of the year, say to themselves, I wonder about the Seder. I wonder whether the Seder, the order that we see in the world, is actually there, 
Or is it something we impose from outside? These distinctions we make between the good guys and the bad guys. Do we really know who the good guys and the bad guys are? And the, the idea of a, a code of law that is telling us what to do. But I can take this Torah and make a mockery out of it. I can show you how the, the way the Torah is set up can arrive at absurdities. And we make distinctions of gender. There's men, there's women. Are we sure those distinctions are really reflecting reality? Maybe reality is chaos. Maybe reality is randomness. That's what all of these practices point towards. And I would go even beyond it, actually, to say something even more than that, which is the following. That the practices, let's say the rabbinic practice, read the Megillah, give tzedakah, and have a meal. So read the Megillah, already for hundreds of years, there was a practice to make so much noise during the Megillah, you can't be Yotze. It's not just about Haman, by the way. And we talk about the Megillah, and when you look at the Ezra's Torah calendar, remember not to talk during the Megillah, you can't be Yotze after every word. And basically, that may be true. But the fact of the matter is that Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years have made so much noise during the Megillah, you can't hear it. And there's the meal. It's another interesting practice that Jews have had for many years, many Jews. To eat the meal of Purim, basically, when Purim is virtually over. To eat the meal at the last split second of the day. So actually the meal of Purim is, is not on Purim. And when it comes to giving tzedakah, right, supporting the Yonim, and there's another practice. Anybody who asks you on Purim, you give. In other words, maybe he's rich, maybe he's poor. The fact that he's asking, we give. In other words, the point is that the common practice essentially runs counter to the rabbinic practice. And I think at its core... There's another thought, which is the following. Achashverosh in the Megillah, I'm sure you people never thought about this because you are very pure souls, but I'll tell you what I think. When you read the Megillah, Achashverosh, what's clear is this. There are a million laws. The word dot appears 20 times. It's got all kinds of rules and laws. He has a lot of halachas, but actually there's only one halacha. The one halacha is, what is good for me? Everything else is irrelevant. It's all, it's all official. It's written out. You know what I mean? The gathering of masses of women for the pleasure of this one guy, basically, basically imprisoning probably thousands of people. The elimination of a whole people because why keep them alive, he says. They don't keep your laws. It's not worthwhile to keep them alive. And not only that, I'll bring a lot of money into your treasuries. Sounds reasonable. So, you know, sounds reasonable. King and Haman sat down to eat. So what's clear is that the, the dot, the rules of this land, all point in the same direction which is what's good for the king. And in fact, even after the king gets rid of Haman, not because he's a bad guy, but because he's thinking about the king's crown, the king at that point in the Megillah, let's not forget it, has still not eliminated the decree against the Jews. He still plans to have all the Jews killed. And when Esther goes, has to beg the king, he says, what can I do? It's the rule. We have laws. We have a nation of laws, right? Got to keep the law. But I'll tell you what I'll do. You can, issue a, you, can, you can issue a second decree that contradicts the first. But when Esther pleads with the king, she doesn't plead on moral grounds. She says nothing about morality to the king. That was Mordechai's mistake. He didn't get, didn't get it. Esther says something else. How can I abide the fact that my people will suffer? You want a happy playmate? This is what she says to him. Want a happy playmate? I'm not going to be happy. That's, that's what she says. She says nothing about morality, killing the innocent, nothing like that. Because that's a complete waste of time. She puts it in terms of herself and by extension the king. Now, so that's Achashverosh. Now what has crossed my mind on many occasions is what about our rules? What about our halachas? What about our decisions? People that make those decisions, okay? Our great sages and rabbis. I wonder, is the, of the purity, is, the, is it about us? Is it about doing the right thing? 
Or is it the people that make the decisions, actually, consciously or unconsciously, are making what they think is right, not necessarily for the people, but right for themselves? That thought has crossed my mind on many occasions, across the board. As I said, so you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. And that's what is actually, that's the radical part of these observances, which is, we have our rules. We have, we have the Megillah, but the folk observance is to undercut all the rules, actually. We raise the question, now we don't raise the question every day. Let me make this clear. The core Jewish holiday is not Purim, as much as I love it. The core Jewish, Jewish holiday is Pesach. The core Jewish ritual is the Seder. At the end of the day, the Seder is the core ritual. The Seder means there's a purpose, and there's an order, and there's a plan, and there's the God who interacts with the world. That's all true. But at least one day in the year, we look around the world and we ask ourselves the question, is that really the case? Is there a different way to see the world? And the fact of the matter is that the Megillah implicitly, if not explicitly, raises that possibility, and that the Jewish people, under the guise of being of drinking, by the way, the drinking, you know what it's like? It's like the court fool. See, the court fool can say whatever he wants. No one else, anybody who criticizes the king is put to death. But the fool, he's the designated fool, so we discount what he says. He can say whatever he wants, because he's a fool. But of course, what the fool says very often is very close to the truth. Dangerously close. Someone else can't say it. So on Purim, we're all drinking. We're all high. We're all drinking, right? On Purim. So we say many things on Purim. Eh, we're drunk, whatever. That gives us cover. That's the cover to say things that we think are true based on our experience, based on what we see. Now, let me get back to what I said yesterday about the Megillah. And what I said yesterday was this. When you read the Megillah, you can, is God in the Megillah? So the claim I made yesterday was that if you walked in the street and you found this little pamphlet and you read the story of the Megillah and you didn't connect it to any other biblical text, you just read the story. I don't think any of us would in a million years suggest that God is in this book. Why would you? It sounds like a tale of a court with a very clever woman and etc., etc., and the bad guys and this and that. And now the cleverness of Esther saves us. God's never mentioned. So why would any rational person suggest that God is there? Yes, you can read God being there given the intertext that it relates to and all that, but in and of itself, so it's only a viable reading. And the king can't sleep at night. He has indigestion. He can't sleep at night. You can read the whole Megillah that way. But the point I made yesterday, I'm not going to go over it now, but the point I made yesterday was that there is, based on some of the intertext, and especially Shiratayam and all that, there's a totally other way to read the Megillah. It's exactly the opposite, which is not only is God present, not from a distance, but the other way to read the Megillah is that actually what the book is about is something very different. It's not actually about the Jews being saved. That is incidental. What the book is actually about is a struggle of God against these other forces and against God's main enemies. The main enemy is Amalek. And how God marshals all kinds of forces, human and otherwise, to defeat God's enemy. And God uses the Jews as bait to get the Amalek to come out and to attempt to, and to marshal a whole army. Haman has a whole army of 75,000, whatever the number is. And after all that, then God can use the Jews and the friends of the Jews, given the way the story is set up, to destroy God's enemies. At the end of the day, the war against Amalek in the Chumash, right down is the book, and God said that I will blot Amalek out from under the heavens. So Amalek is actually primarily the enemy of God, as is the snake. It's God's enemy. But God uses the Jews to destroy Amalek, just as God uses the Jews in the Chumash to destroy Pharaoh's armies. 
How does God use the Jews to destroy Pharaoh's armies? God sends us on a misdirection. God sends us down in a, on a journey which takes us back right in front of Yamsuf with the seas in front of us and the chariots are behind us. How did we end up there? We got, took a wrong turn. But the one who gave us the wrong turn was God. By Yaseva and Elohim et Am. But it's only bait because God is using us to destroy Pharaoh and Pharaoh's chariots. As God said, because they're my people, they're not yours. So there's a struggle in the book of Exodus between God and the Pharaoh, between God and the gods, and Yam and Tahom and all that. So I said, that's a way to read the Megillah. But my point yesterday was the following. There's three ways to read the Megillah. You can see God is completely absent. You can see God is totally running the whole show. It's all about God. You can take the intermediate position. God, of course, is there, but in the background. My point yesterday about the Megillah was... You can choose any which way you want, basically. You can choose to believe. I mentioned my experience of growing up with survivors. You can choose to believe that God was there in the camps with all the people who died and suffered. You want to believe that? I have no problem with that. I know people who survived and believed it, actually. I know many people who survived and don't believe it. And my point yesterday was that you can believe whatever you want, which is totally fine. As long as you understand that somebody with a similar experience believes exactly the opposite. Faith is a choice that you make. You choose, basically. You choose a course of action and a course of belief, but you should be aware of the fact that in this dark world, good people could come to exactly the opposite conclusion. That's what I take out of the Megillah. And that, I think, is the way the book is written. The book is more than any book that we have. There's nothing like it. It's a book that lends itself to two readings. Someone after the class here, there were million questions, and... Someone asked me about the idea that the book can be read in different ways. So let me just say the following, and then we'll come back to the Megillah. I mean, come back, win the Megillah. But many, many years ago, when I first started teaching Chumash, I was not a Chumash teacher. For the first many years of my life, I just studied Gemara. I studied nothing else. I studied Gemara. Chumash was an accident, actually. I was approached by Lincoln Square Synagogue to give the class in the morning, the Parsha class, Shabbos morning. So that started. And I said, yes, I'll do it without thinking. I don't know anything. You know what I mean? So I said, yes. And then I worked like crazy those years to give the class every week. Spent a lot of time on that. And that, gradually I got very into that and I developed my own approach. So among other things, when I first started out a long time ago, and I was unaware of what's going on in the rest of the world. I was unaware of what goes on in the universities. At that very same time, there was a big drive in the universities towards a literary approach to the study of Bible. At right exactly the same time. Sternberg, Robert Alter, all these people, unbeknownst to me. But some of the things that I said actually turns out to be exactly parallel to what they were saying. And one of the ideas I developed in those days, when I first started out, was the idea of purposeful ambiguity. That is that there are words, verses, extended texts that can be read in different ways, and the reader can't ever make a determination which of the two is 100% right. There are two plausible readings of a text, and they're both possible. And that became actually, in the world of literary criticism, a big deal. It's still called gapping. I, I didn't know anything about it, but I, the truth of the matter is, I will say that over the course of the last 15, 20 years, I'm much more wary of this approach. I think that it's true about some texts, but I think they operate for other reasons. I can't get into this right now. And the only text I think that we have, which truly can be read in two different ways, and one cannot determine which way, is the Book of Esther. In other words... Let's say Achashverosh. Is he a fool? He's an idiot? Or he's not an idiot at all. He's a bad guy, but he is very clever. The truth of the matter is, when you read the Megillah from beginning to end, both possibilities are very present. The example I like to give, and there are actually several good examples, 
But the example I always like to give is when Queen Esther goes to the king and says to the king, please retract the earlier message. The messages were sent out, we know, on the 13th of Adar to kill all the Jews. But now it turns out that the, one, the instigator, Haman, has been executed by the king. The king doesn't like Haman. So Esther goes to the king and says, Roshiva Tasfarim, retract the letters. In other words, what Esther is asking for, it's interesting, she says, send another letter out, two words, no war. We love peace. We love peace. We're in favor of peace. So we don't want a war. So just say, no war. Right? Esther doesn't want any killing. The Megillah is a very bloody book. People criticize all these people being killed. But the truth is, Esther doesn't want to kill anybody. Esther says, Roshiva Tasfarim, bring back the letters. So there won't be a war. So what does the king say? Can't do what he says. Because it was signed with my seal. Once it's signed with the king's seal, you can't retract it. But I'll tell you what you want. Here, you do whatever you want. You write whatever you want with my seal. And that's also good. You can write a second letter, which contradicts the first one. You can't take back the first one. But you can write a second letter that contradicts the first one. But we understand. If you want to see Achashverosh as an idiot, that makes perfect sense. You can't retract the first letter. But you can send out a second letter that contradicts the first. So we would say, it's a tipesh. That was mixed. It's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Obviously, the guy is a fool. That's one way to read the Megillah. However, actually, and from that example, I would say we should infer quite the opposite. He's not a tipesh at all. Let's, let's put yourself in his place. You're You have convinced yourself, correctly or not correctly, and by the way, I'm not sure he's wrong, that Harmon is after the crown. It's not sure to me that's not true, by the way. But it but doesn't matter. You have convinced yourself that Haman, wicked Haman, is after the crown, and you killed him. Killed him with the excuse of trying to grab the queen, which may even be part of the political thing, but it doesn't matter. Haman is God, wicked Haman, you killed him. Haman has an army, which he has bought, which has at least 75,000 soldiers. Many of them in your own city of Shushan. And let me ask you a question. If you're King Achashverosh, and you're convinced that your enemy who tried, was going to kill you and take the crown has army of tens and tens or maybe hundreds, thousands of soldiers, what are you going to say? You want these people around you? They were loyal to the man who was going to kill you. So you don't want them around you. You want to kill them. You want to destroy them. But you don't want to destroy them because you're a good Persian. You don't want to destroy them. So we have to find someone else to destroy them for you. What better group to destroy them than those on the margins? So therefore the king says to Esther, I'm sorry, Queen Esther, you know what? The king's seal. We can't, we can't. The war must go on. We need war. He loves peace, but he needs war. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I can't get involved in this. Why don't you write whatever you want? Same thing he said to Haman. Do, do, do whatever you want. And sign it with my seal. And of course, so there is a war. And remember, when the king comes back, what does he say to Esther in chapter? How many, have, how many have the Jews killed, he says. How many have the Jews killed? Jews don't want to kill anybody. So the point is, he's not a tipesh. He's a very clever guy. And you can read the whole Megillah that way. Now the point is, I can give you several other examples where what seems to be ridiculous, actually from a certain perspective, makes complete sense. And now, so the question is, why is this the case? I think there's no other book like it. Even the story of Joseph, which is one of Sternberg's examples, which I used to talk about at Lane's myself, even there, where it's not clear sometimes why Joseph does what he does, that's true. But there's a different explanation for that, which I can't get into now. It's different. But the Megillah, from beginning to end, you can read it in multiple ways. Starting with Achashverosh, not only Achashverosh. You can extend it to God. What is God doing in this book? Where is God in this book? And I think it's, to me, it's part of the very nature of the book. It's part, the book is about being in a, in a dark place, actually. Being in a place where there's no clarity. 
because clarity is often a function of God speaking, God instructing us. But God does not instruct in this book. The only instruction that comes in the book, if there is instruction, is Esther and Mordechai telling Esther what to do. He doesn't tell her how to do it. I mean, he tells her wrong how to do it, but he tells her what to do. So you're living in a world of darkness, a world of doubt, actually. And I think the book reflects that. And in this world, it's not clear. It's also not clear what the outcomes are. That's what I wanted to say about the Megillah. We will, I think next week, one more week about Purim, and then we'll move to Pesach. My wife has on her desk, there's a guy named Clarence Jordan. I'm sure no one here heard of Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan was a Christian, a serious Christian, who started a place called Konania, which is down in southern Georgia. Konania was a retreat, intentional community, which he started during, I think, 1942. And he had a farm produce different things, and he had white people and black people together, and he actually paid them the same wages, which was like unbelievable. And they tried to kill him, the Ku Klux Klan, they tried to burn him out, they tried to shoot him. Anyway, he was very interesting, and he wrote a couple of books, very Christian, and he had these pithy statements. And one of them she has on her desk about faith, Emunah, and he has the following statement, which I 100% subscribe to. Faith is not the belief, I'm paraphrasing it, faith is not the belief that things will turn out okay. It's not yiyatov you hear in Israel, expression I hate, yiyatov. Faith is doing the right thing despite the consequences. Actually, thinking about that, that's exactly what Esther says, actually. Exactly what Esther says at the end. Go to the king. I can't go. It's against the law. I'm a good Persian. We don't break laws. Too dangerous. This is why you became the queen. So Esther says, I'll go to the king and I'll break the law. Bechasher ovadati ovadati. It's translated, if I perish, I perish. But actually, it's even more sounds like when I perish, I'll perish. In other words, I'm going to go to the king because it's the right thing to do. Not because we are assured of a good outcome. Quite the opposite. Esther doesn't believe there's going to be a good outcome. She's going to do her best, but she understands that the laws are against her. The king hasn't called her for 30 days. Maybe he lost interest. And the king has no interest in saving anybody outside of himself. So, but the point is, it's the right thing to do. And that's Esther's faith. Esther's faith is, despite the consequences, you do the right thing. That's the nature of faith. And that's the faith of the Megillah. And maybe the faith is that our responsibility is to do God's work. Whether God is present or absent, that's one thing. But we are God's agents to do God's work in this world. God has working through us. That's another way to read it.